Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm Ari Ariel, the host of the channel, and today we'll be talking to Bedros Dermatosian, an assistant professor at the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, about his new book, Shattered Dreams of Revolution, From Liberty to Violence in the Late Ottoman Empire. Hello, Bedros. How are you? Welcome to the show. Uh, Hi, Ari. How are you doing? Great. It's great to have you. I'm wondering if we could begin by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, and how you decided to to start the project that led to this book. Yeah, thank you, first of all, Ari, for inviting me to this show. I was born and raised in Jerusalem, and that's uh, my background. Uh, I grew up in the old city of Jerusalem, and, and uh, I grew up with uh, five languages, uh, multilingual, uh, uh, Armenian, Arabic, Hebrew, Turkish, and English. So basically, my uh, my interest has always been uh, to explore interethnic relationship in the both the modern and the late Ottoman period, and uh, I uh, and I uh, for for that reason I uh, went to the Hebrew University of Jerusalem where I got my degrees in political science and Islamic and Middle Eastern studies, and then I started my graduate studies there in the Department of Islamic Studies, and then I transferred to Columbia University, where I finished my PhD in Middle Eastern Studies in the Department of Middle Eastern, Asian, and African Studies. And uh, so my background plays a dominant role in writing this book in the sense that uh, it explores uh, certain aspects of uh, my, uh, my experience in the old city of Jerusalem, understanding the relationship between different ethnic groups, the boundaries between different ethnic groups uh, as highlighted and represented by the different quarters of the old city of Jerusalem. And one of the most important aspects of understanding the, these inter-ethnic uh, relations is to examine the, the, the most important transformation that happened in the beginning of the 20th century Besides World War One in the uh, in the Ottoman Empire, and that's the 1908 revolution. So uh, uh, for for, uh, for that aim, I uh, I focused my research on the 1908 revolution and the way in which it influenced the different ethnic groups within the empire. Maybe for our listeners who don't know very much about it, you could give us a little bit of background on the 1908 revolution yeah. and tell us how your work fits into the literature. Uh, more generally, yeah, sure. perhaps. The 1908 revolution is one of the, as I said, the most important revolutions that took place in the uh, in the Ottoman Empire. So we have a lot of literature that has been written about the causes and the initial implementation of the of these revolutions, whether it's the 1908 revolution or whether it's the Iranian constitutional revolution that started in 1905 and ended in 1911. But there is there is little material that appropriately addresses the complexity and the impact on the worldview of different ethno-religious groups in the in the in the empire or in Iran. Uh, 
So, uh, and uh, what I do is that I do not view the uh, the revolution from the perspective of the state, but I view the revolution from the perspective of the non-dominant groups. Uh, for example, the existing scholarship on the impact of the Young Turk Revolution is divided between two groups. One group views the revolution as a factor that led to the decline of the inter-ethnic relationships between the different groups in the empire and culminated in the rise of ethnic nationalism, while, whereas the other group usually uh, views the revolution uh, as, a, as, as a romantic period in which was disrupted by World War I. As a, uh, of course, the Young Turk Revolution happened in 1908. It was, uh, uh, it was uh, engineered by a group called the Young Turks, they were an opposition group in the exile, and their aim was to was to reinstate the constitution and reopen the parliament that has been uh, closed and the constitution abrogated by Sultan Abdul Hamid II. So for that aim, they were able to achieve their goal by initiating the revolution in cooperation with some uh, ethnic groups, including Armenians uh, and some Arabs. So uh, it is a major happening in the in the in the 19 in, in the early early modern Middle East, and the repercussions of these revolutions could be seen even today in the Arab Spring. So there are a lot of commonalities between what happened in the in the past, the idea of re, uh, of bringing uh, uh, parliamentarism and constitutionalism into the uh, into the uh, into the uh, scene of the Ottoman Empire and uh, starting a new political system based on ideas of enlightenment, of popular sovereignty, and constitutionalism and parliamentarism, in which all the ethnic groups were going to be Ottomans, and they were going to be represented as, uh, as citizens rather than subjects. And, and your work focuses primarily on the Arab, Armenian, and Jewish communities and, and their relationship to the revolution, is that correct? Yes, it, it discusses basically the way in which the uh, Armenians, Arabs, and Jews viewed the revolution. So I do and I go and examine the primary sources in Armenian, Hebrew, Arabic, Ladino, Ottoman, Turkish, and try to reconstruct the ways in which these groups viewed the revolution, in which in, in the ways in which these the, these groups had expectations uh, with the revolution. The the their hopes were very high that the revolution was going to start open a new page and start a new phase in in their uh, in the history of the Ottoman Empire in which they were going to be they were going to be able to achieve their goals whether it was uh, preserving their uh, privileges or instituting administrative decentralization in order to uh, in order to uh, achieve the uh, higher aim of living equally with their uh, 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 with their with the dominant group and so chapter one gives some really vivid images of, of the revolutionary festivals that happened right after the revolution could you talk about that perhaps a little bit what sort of imagery and symbolism was being used so basically chapter chapter one discusses the euphoria of the revolution any revolution even today the Arab Spring uh, revolutions happen, and afterwards we we have a, a, a very intense phase of euphoria that is uh, that is manifested in jubilation and festivities, and and the revolution itself creates a political culture, a culture that uh, is represented by symbolism, uh, 
by space, celebration in space and festivities. So one important thing, if we really want to understand this political culture and the way in which different groups who participated in the festivities uh, saw themselves and saw the revolution, is to analyze these, uh, these festivities. So in the first chapter, I do analyze revolutionary festivities in the prov- provinces, and then I go in, into an in-depth analysis of the rituals uh, by revolutionary rituals by analyzing three important aspects, the spaces, the space, uh, the symbolism, and the language of the revolution. By space, I mean analyzing the interior of churches, the gardens, and the cemeteries in which these festivities took place. And then by symbolism, I analyze the uh, symbolism of the revolution in terms of postcards, in terms of emblems, in terms of flags, and then the language of the revolution in terms of the, uh, the language on the banners, the, uh, the language of the speeches. And these are very important aspects if one needs to understand the, uh, the way in which uh, these ethnic groups viewed the uh, revolution. So, this exi- uh, so examining symbolism, space, language, speech, and revolutionary figures in the public rituals of the 1900 revolution provides, provides us a new understanding of the festivals, which were crucial aspect of creating new Ottoman patriotism. So the aim of the political culture is to create new Ottoman patriotism. So, and with their uh, multivocality, symbols demonstrated the existence of ambiguous common symbolic culture aimed at uniting all the ethnic groups under one identity, and that identity is Ottoman, Ottomanism. So I argue that Ottomanism was an ambiguous term the same way as other terms were ambiguous. Loyalty to the nation, for example, had to transcend ethnic, transcend ethnic religious allegiances. Uh, but what we see in these revolutionary festivities goes beyond the attempt at national unity, uh, uh, and uh, which included uh, confessional divisions, language differences, factionalism, and assertions of separate identity that all contradicted the whole ideal of Ottomanism, the whole ideal of a political culture of creating a new Ottoman nation. Is this something that, that the different ethnic groups use differently, the spaces and the symbolism, or was there some commonality between how Arab, Armenian, and Jewish communities use these spaces and symbols? That's a very good question, Ari. Uh, the, in, in the case of the Armenians, most of these uh, festivities were began in the churches, okay, in the churches. And the church is a very interesting phenomenon because... We don't see these festivities taking place in the mosques or the uh, or the temples, okay? And uh, when when they take place in the church, they transform the church, decorate the church in order to uh, transform it into a new into new uh, phase. And uh, but most of these groups do the common place that they do gather is the is the gardens. Uh, because the garden is a natural, is decorated natural, naturally. Gardens and cemeteries, those cemeteries have a lot of memory in it, uh, a hidden memory under the earth of those victims who died for the brotherhood. Uh, but uh, they, yet they gather in these places, in the gardens specifically. When they, they gather in these places, they bring their own identities with them and they give uh, talks and speeches in their in their uh, native languages where, where others wouldn't understand what's happening and they bring their own flags and their own symbols. So, it, so it's a contradictory aspect of, of celebrating, uh, celebrating union, you know, celebrating uh, brotherhood where uh, it, is, uh, it is manifested in 
in uh, in factionalism and uh, assertion of separatism and identities. And I'd imagine that the celebrations that took place in these spaces were very different than the celebrations that took place in in public spaces. Is that is that right? Yes, there's a difference between these celebra- celebrations. Churches are a, a different case because uh, we see in churches more emphasis, for example, in the Armenian churches, it's mostly controlled by the Armenians. And when you go outside for the public, uh, uh, for the public uh, celebration in the gardens or the cemeteries, you have more participation by the different ethnic groups. Were the were the ethnic groups conscious of this contradiction between between the idea of unity and then the diversity of the ethnic groups themselves in terms of language? And I don't think they I don't like? think they were conscious. I think it's the task of historian to analyze these uh, subconscious process and uh, highlight these differences. I don't think they were uh, conscious. They were they were thinking that whatever they were doing was natural in terms of participating in in, in festivals that aimed to demonstrate uh, their allegiance and loyalty to the new era and the new Ottoman Ottoman vision, but yet they were bringing their own peculiarities and their own uh, uh, their own differences in order to demonstrate their loyalty. One important thing that I borrow from uh, uh, anthropologist Frederick Barb is the concept of of uh, ethnic boundaries, uh, you know, he argues that ethnic boundaries are. He argues that the participation of different groups in 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 these types of ceremonies is actually meant to uh, uh, meant to assert their own identity and boundaries. So, uh, ethnic boundaries are not boundaries that are uh, stiff and and uh, solid that divide different groups. The fact that these groups interact together is a manifestation of their uh, of their identities. So, uh, yeah. So, to some extent, the ambiguity of, of unity versus ethnic relations is built into ethnic identity and then amplified by the revolution. Yes, yes, definitely. So, once the the euphoria of the revolution died down, how did the different ethnic groups talk about their expectations for the future? Of course, when the euphoria downs, the real litmus test of the revolution starts. So, what do we what do we do, what do we do from uh, from here? I don't know, how do we proceed? And and the best the best place to examine this uh, uh, this this should would be the press, and that's the subject of the second chapter, which is entitled "Debating the Future of the Empire." One important thing that we have to understand that the issues that these ethnic groups discussed in the aftermath of the Yom Kippur Revolution were not unique to the to the period, meaning to the post-revolutionary period. Uh, they discussed them in the exilic public sphere in different cities such as Cairo, Tbilisi, Geneva, London, Boston, uh, by uh, these exiled intellectuals and uh, and uh, activists. But when they come back after the 1908 revolution, these subjects become more robust. Uh, one important thing that we need to understand when we discuss the post-revolutionary uh, political discourse is that this discourse has been tremendously influenced by the French revolutionary rhetoric, French revolution rhetoric of the French Revolution, specifically the trinity of ideals, liberty, fraternity, and equality, which, uh, uh, which found its strong echo among the various ethnic groups in their presses. So the issues debated among these groups in the period uh, were essential in determining their policy, 
identity space in the Ottoman Empire and keeping with the French influence, freedom, equality and fraternity, dancing regime and the desired political system were the main contested themes in the political discourse. But one thing also we need to take into consideration that we cannot argue and say that there was monolithic uh, presentation of these discourses. We cannot say that there is an Armenian version, an Arab version, a Jewish version or a Turkish version because each because there because each group had its intra intra ethnic uh, debate about these concepts. So these concepts also it's important to uh, highlight the fact that these concepts were also ambiguous. You know what is meant by equality, what is meant by freedom, what is meant by fraternity. How do we really define the ancien, ancien regime? Uh, so when we examine the, these newspapers during the immediate and aftermath of the Young Turk Revolution, we, 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 we come into a conclusion that there exists uh, several conflicting discourses competing against one another to define important themes of the period discussed in this chapter. For example, just if we take the concept of Ottomanism. Ottomanism entailed, for example, that all ethnic groups be brothers and equal citizens. But it also required that all the groups, meaning Armenians, Arabs, and Jews, should abandon their previously established privileges that they enjoyed from the 18th, 19th, 17th, 18th, 19th century. And when a young Turk version of Ottomanism comes, comes into play, this causes much anxiety among the different ethnic groups whose communities enjoyed privileges bestowed on them by previous regime. At the same time, we see also the dominant group becomes skeptical about the implementation of Ottomanism, even though even with their own version, and they start reaffirming their position as the ruling nations. Uh, the word in Ottoman Turkish is Milati Hakime in the empires. So, so we so these this period becomes contentious period in terms of struggling to define different concepts. There is a lot of negotiation that takes place uh, in, the, in the ethnic groups, among the ethnic groups and between the ethnic groups, between the dominant and non-dominant groups in negotiating the most important concepts and the most important uh, issues about the future of the Ottoman Empire. And there is a lot of ambiguity in these, uh, in these, uh, 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 in, in these debates and discourses. And within the ethnic groups, then, is that ambiguity about uh, understandings of Ottomanism, or is it also about a competition for power between different elements within the ethnic yeah, groups? Excellent, excellent point, Ari. And that's the topic of the third chapter, actually. When the revolution takes place, it's open, it, it, it opens a space of, uh, of competition between different elements within these ethnic groups, and the competition becomes, on, uh, becomes about who represents the group. We have the emergence of new political parties that were outlawed by the Ottoman uh, government during the Hamidian period. Uh, these uh, parties become major players in the political decision-making process. In the case of the Armenians, we have the emergence of the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the Hunchak uh, political party, uh, the, the uh, reformed Hunchak political party. In the case of the Jews, we have the emergence of Zionism, and for Zionism, this becomes a major issue, a major source of hope that the revolution is going to give them a chance to implement their national project by establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine. 
uh, the, the same case might be with the Arab case that uh, you, that the revolution opens a new door for uh, for uh, for the emergence of new uh, groups in the Arab provinces that would take the power from the hands of the notables and establish themselves as the sources of uh, uh, of, of politics. And for all these groups, that still remains within the Ottoman framework. So is this uh, maybe a question of centralization versus decentralization, or or how does that play out within the competition among the groups? Of course, all the groups, uh, to that extent, uh, uh, the Armenians, for example, Albanians, uh, to a certain extent, the Arabs uh, and and Zionists also, all of them be- believe that the ultimate panacea of the of the uh, of the problems that inflicted the Ottoman Empire was through the remedy was decentralization. And what they meant by decentralization is administrative decentralization, meaning that uh, it it is only by changing certain structures within the provinces that would fit much better the ethnic groups, such as appointing uh, sub-district governors or uh, head of gendarmes or or etc. from the ethnic groups, and they don't have to take uh, decisions all the time, uh, wait for decisions from the center, from Istanbul. Uh, so that's what they believed in administrative decentralization. But the Young Turk Party in power, the Ittihadists, were all were very cautious and worried about the fact that administrative decentralization is the way to political decentralization, and, and political decentralization is the way to independence. The Young Turks were uh, empire-oriented group. They uh, their major aim was centralization. They used constitutionalism and parliamentarism as a mean to keep the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, an integrity of a centralized Ottoman Empire, where the CUP was going to have its power, its uh, its grip over the over the power in the empire, something that contradicted the vision that the other groups uh, saw in the, uh, as, as, a, as the future of the, of the empire. So perhaps from the very beginning, then, the different groups had very un- different understandings of, of what Ottomanism and what the revolution meant. Of course, what I argue in the book, also that these issues, the problems that surfaced in the Ottoman, in the post-revolutionary Ottoman empire were not, uh, were not uh, a surprise or did not happen suddenly. These issues were discussed even prior to the revolution 19th century. It became a source of contention between the young Turks and the different ethnic groups. You know, So it's not that suddenly they came to the post-revolutionary period and they didn't know what to do. And the source of contention and the source of problem existed even prior to the, uh, prior to the revolution. So uh, the young, Turk, uh, young, young Turks ideology was based on the following, that uh, the empire should be centralized, uh, revolution should be a uh, universal revolution, uh, no, the elections should be universal elections, and not proportional elections, empire should be centralized, uh, the Turkish language should be implemented in, in schools, beginning, beginning from uh, elementary, and uh, all the ethnic groups should give up their ethnic privileges. Some, and that was that was very evident even prior to the uh, revolution. So when the revolution happens, it, it opens uh, opens opens Pandora's box of really major issues that have been going on prior to the 
uh, prior to the revolution. Of course, prior to the revolution, we have the Hamidian regime, and Abdul Hamid was able to suppress these these views within the empire. But these views were very, uh, very, uh, uh, very much spread in the in the exilic public sphere outside the Ottoman Empire, both in Europe, uh, Cairo, and United States. And so after the revolution that that leads to the revival of Ottoman politics within the empire, um, and and you mentioned briefly the the question of elections, which I think it would be nice if we could talk about a little bit more. You said that that certain groups are advocating for proportional representation and others for for just a general election. Could you explain that a little more? Of course, one important thing that we need to understand that the uh, despite the fact that the 1908 elections fell short of fully democratic standards, yet they were competitive elections. Would that reveal much about the social, political, and ideological evolution of ethnic groups in the empire? This is the first time that we see in the uh, process of democratization, uh, uh, quote-unquote democratization in the Middle East. Uh, and what is most interesting about the process of, the, uh, of these elections is not the elections balloting procedure, but rather the phase prior to the balloting, during which intensive negotiations took place among and between different ethnic groups. And, uh, and these negotiations, whether they were successful or not, decided the course of the elections. And what is interesting to notice that these procedures indicate that some groups were not wholeheartedly committed to exercising, exercising their duties as Ottoman citizens, for the sake of an Ottoman fatherland or a pan-Ottoman platform. The elections, again, were overshadowed by complex ethnic politics and lobbying effort among and between the different ethnic groups, a fact that highlights the multifaceted tension that is manifested in the campaigns, negotiations between different ethnic groups, alliances, policies, and deals surrounding the critical phase of elections. Again, I reiterate, the fact that the uh, the uh, the elections were not done proportionally, the fear of the young Turks was that if we do the elections based on proportional representations, the non-dominant groups were going to gain higher uh, votes and gain more uh, MPs in the parliament. And the only way to do this is through universal representation, what is also called uh, uh, dividing districts according to the policies of the Young Turks, otherwise also known as gerrymandering in the elections. So uh, what we see in the elections is a fascinating uh, uh, fascinating uh, phase in which uh, different ethnic groups start establishing their electoral bodies and campaigns and start negotiating negotiating with each other and different ethnic groups about whom they should elect because the, the because the elections were two stage ballots so it wasn't direct elections so the uh, they would elect like 500 uh, uh, 500 representatives who are going to elect the uh, uh, the uh, candidates so uh, what i argue in that chapter is that to a certain extent the real election took place before the balloting and the balloting was only a formality but the phase prior to the balloting is extremely important and extremely contentious. For example, I, I bring the example of Van, you know, in, in Anatolia and uh, represent how the Armenian politics played in, in, in Anatolia. It wasn't a monolithic political front. Armenians were divided in, in between themselves 
uh, themselves into different political parties and they fought against each other in order to be able to uh, uh, in order to be able to present their own candidate, whether it's the Armenian Dashnak group or the Hinchaks or the Ramgavars, in presenting their own candidates. In the end, uh, the uh, the Dashnak the Dashnaks were able to elect their candidates to the candidate, one candidate to the parliament. But of course, one important thing also we have to realize that the Armenian Revolutionary Federation, the Dashnaks, were in alliance with the Committee of Union and Progress, and that helped them in achieving some of their victories in the provinces. Uh, yeah. Were there, so there were a lot of different alliances between ethnic groups and, and across ethnic groups? Is that yes, that's what I mean. And sometimes and there, there's intra-ethnic uh, tensions in, the, in, in electing uh, representatives for, the, uh, for their ethnic groups. So, uh, I mean, the case might be uh, in, uh, is also true uh, for the uh, for the Jews. You know, the Zionists were hoping that they would be able to elect a Zionist represent a Jewish representative from Jerusalem, but they were not able to do that. Uh, they were able to elect from Istanbul, Izmir, and Salonika, but they were not able to elect uh, a, a, a representative from Jerusalem. Uh, of course, after fierce uh, competition and even you know lobbying for their own. Uh, a candidate. So maybe given the, the different understandings of the revolution and, and the different competitions for power within ethnic groups, it's not surprising that the different groups had different expectations for what they would uh, achieve from the elections. Were they satisfied with the results? Were they dissatisfied? Of course, in the case of the Jews, they were satisfied, uh, uh, generally satisfied with the election results. Others like Greek and Armenians were extremely dissatisfied. And many of these members accused the CUP of both electoral irregularities in the provinces and gerrymandering. Others claimed that the districts were divided in a way that prevented non-Muslims from gaining large number of votes. And I believe in the latter, that the districts were divided to prevent non-Muslims from gaining large number of votes. Because from the perspective of the CUP giving too much power to the non-dominant groups, if they really wanted to play on, on the card of democracy and universal representation, they were afraid that they would go that, that the non-dominant group represents specifically the Greeks were going to gain uh, more power in the parliament and uh, and since now we are going to play the parliamentary game, it's uh, they had they wanted to be very careful uh, to be able to control the elections and the results of the elections. The among the Armenians, for example, the dissatisfaction the satisfaction regarding the election was less apparent in the Dashna camp in the Armenian revolutionary. Federation camp and more apparent in the non-Dashnak camps. Uh, for example, some non-Dashnak members were hoping that they would be able to elect 30 members of parliament, and in the end, we were able; uh, they were able to elect only 12. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So, so then moving forward, once the the parliament is elected, what sort of politics, what sort of themes do we see it play out in parliament itself, with debates and things of, of that course, nature? Of course, you're talking about a very short period until the counter revolution that took place in April 12th, uh, with the new calendar is uh, 31st of uh, uh, March uh, in the uh, in the uh, old calendar. And uh, of course, when we examine the uh, Ottoman parliamentary debate, it tells us it tells us tells, tells us a lot of things about the uh, tensions within the parliament. 
one important thing that we need to understand that the uh, that the Arabs, despite the fact that they they, they did play uh, a bit, uh, a ro- they did play a role in in the discussions of the Baghdad railway or the Hejaz railway, but they did not take a major part in the parliamentary debates, mainly due to the fact of their uh, of their uh, weak weakness in Ottoman language, but also due to the fact that there wasn't a national uh, issue that pertained to the Arabs. So the Arabs, until 1911, we don't see them acting as a bloc, as an ethnic bloc. It was not until 1911 that Zionism and its project in Palestine would attract the criticism of many Arab deputies and then become a huge issue, uh, uh, a huge issue within the, uh, within the parliament. In the case of the Armenians, prior to the elections, Armenians had already established a parliamentary bloc. And this parliamentary bloc will play a dominant role in raising major issues within the parliament uh, in in trying to uh, bring the attention of the government to the condition of the Armenians in the eastern provinces. So so the condition of the Armenians in the eastern provinces and the necessity of sending there uh, uh, sending there an investigation commission was a major issue and a major priority for the Armenian parliamentarians in the parliament and they were able to raise this issue and they were able to uh, uh, to bring the attention of all the members of parliament even they were able to uh, put bills into the motion about sending an investigation commission but the power of the Committee of Union Progress members in the Parliament, uh, relying on their majoritarian uh, uh, power, they were able to block these uh, these uh, uh, these suggestions. And the Armenians tried uh, relentlessly to do that for a couple of times, and every time they tried, uh, they were blocked by the members of the CUP. And most important vocal member. Uh, in the CUP was uh, Hussein Jahid, who fervently attacked on the different motions brought by the Ar- Armenians, arguing that there was no need for an interplay uh, for for bringing these uh, these uh, motions, and uh, and they, he, they, he was very successful in convincing the other members of the CUP to block uh, the Armenian measures of the members of the parliament. In, in addition to reform in the provinces, you mentioned a couple of other main issues that the parliament takes up, um, the question of Macedonia and concessions to foreign countries. Maybe you could talk about those a little bit? Of course, concessions from uh, for, to for, for foreign countries had to do with the way in which the government had given concessions to uh, uh, to foreign countries for different projects in the Ottoman Empire and when the uh, and these were done during the Hamidian period and apparently the population didn't know was not aware about these concessions especially especially the Hejaz concession and when the parliament opens may uh, deputies from the from the region start raising issues and want the uh, Minister of Public Work to come and give an account to about these concessions to the Parliament. And the Minister refuses to come to the Parliament and instead sends the uh, representative. And it creates a lot of problems within the, within the Parliament uh, regarding the, whether these concessions should be given, whether the public should be aware of, about these concessions. And one, one thing that we need to understand in putting it in the larger context that concessions is a, are a major issue during this period, not only in the Ottoman Empire, but in Iran. I mean, in Iran, we have the tobacco concession and then the uh, oil concession, William Darkey oil concession, which raises major issues and protests within the Iran, Iranian uh, 
Iranian within Iran, and these concessions has has been looked upon as uh, some type of neo of of colonialism or or some type of some type of European intrusion in the internal affairs of the of the country. As uh, when it comes to the Macedonian question, of course, the Macedonian question has been lingering for many years, and and when the parliament opens, it becomes a major issue of debate within the uh, among the different deputies representing the Bulgarians and the Greeks and the Vlachs and many other uh, members of the parliament. But one one important thing uh, that we need to re- realize in the Macedonian question is that uh, the debates within the parliament and the fights within the parliaments were not based on uh, on 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 uh, it wasn't the, it wasn't a national question it was more uh, 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 ecclesiastic question about which church was running the political affairs within uh, which region so that was between the, the the division was between the bulgarians and the and the uh, greek and the greek uh, represented by, by represented by the greek patriarchate so uh, again and again i reiterate the fact in the book that the post 1908 uh, uh, politics is not only about national uh, secular politics but it should be also seen through the eyeglass of uh, of ecclesiastic politics. So ecclesiastic politics played a dominant role in the post-revolutionary period, not only among the among the among the in in, in the Balkan states, but also uh, Balkan provinces, but also among Armenians, among Jews, and also among Arabs. Themselves, in the case in mind is the is the patriarch al uh, uh, the patriarch, the Maronite patriarch, patriarch in uh, the. Uh, Mount uh, of Mount Lebanon. So, to some extent, then there there are three levels of of parliamentary politics. There's intergroup uh, competition. There's a, a question of demonstrating loyalty to the empire, and also of protecting the interests of your own ethnic group. Yes, I, yes, of course. And or those, I would imagine, very difficult to to reconcile. Yes, it was very difficult to reconcile. Of course, one of the one of the contradictions of the revolution is that uh, is the following: a revolution aimed to create a secular Ottoman citizen whose allegiance was supposed to be to the Ottoman state. But what it did, it strengthened the ethnic uh, ethnic allegiances of different ethnic groups. And uh, uh, of course, ethnic politics contradicts the uh, the ideal of Ottomanism. Ethnic politics contradicts the ideals of Ottomanism. Of course, this, the, 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 having said that, it doesn't mean that only the non-dominant groups played on the ethnic card. The dominant group, represented by the young young Turks, played their own dominant card. Their own definition of uh, Ottomanism had the fervor of Turkish nationalism. It was uh, their own version of what it meant to be an Ottomanism, which contradicted the ideal Ottomanism. And no one was able to define what ideal Ottomanism was, because again and again, I, I reiterate the fact that Ottomanism itself is an ambiguous term. Maybe you could say a little bit also about the the counter revolution, which is the the topic of your chap your final chapter, um, and how that sort of leads to what what you say is the d- demise of the Ottoman dream. What sort of politics are involved in the counter revolution, so, and maybe give a little background for people who don't know what we're so talking. The counter revolution happened uh, about I think eight to nine months after the revolution itself. Uh, uh, one important thing that we need to understand here is that the counter-revolution was not a manifestation of religious fanaticism 
as generally have, uh, as scholars generally have supposed, and people say, well, it was Islam and religion, and that's why the backward people, and that's why they wanted to do the counter-revolution. It, uh, it, although, although due to the fact that it spoke in the language of religion, it nevertheless was forwarded by diverse groups. And the most important of, of these groups were the lower-ranking soldiers and officers who had been uh, who had opposed the, the indiscriminate massive purges initiated by the CUP after the revolution. So when the revolution takes place, the Committee of Union and Progress, uh, the first thing they do, they remove all the important positions, the members of the, uh, all the important positions, the governors, etc., from the provinces, and they initiate these vast purges, not only uh, in the provinces, but inside the army, and they bring their own people into these positions. And the, and, and the counter-revolution is a manifestation of that. So when the lower rank, when, when these, uh, lower ranking officers actually were, uh, revolting against the, uh, uh, against the, uh, against the, uh, uh, uh committee of union progress, they were also revolting for their own interests. So, uh, the uh, the low-ranking populist religious organization, they all asked the implementation of the Sharia, and their aim was not to abolish the constitution, but rather to implement the constitution in accordance with the principles of the Sharia. And that's what, and that's what they wanted. It wasn't, uh, it wasn't a fanatic movement of people. It was more a combination of diverse group represented by lower-ranking people who wanted, who wanted to elevate their status, who were very angry of losing the power. From, uh, that they had during the Hamidian period, and also uh, the different softas and religious uh, 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 students who wanted to implement the constitution, but in accordance with the principle of the Sharia. And yeah, and how did how did the different ethnic groups react to the counter revolution? And particularly, I was thinking that within each ethnic group, there must have been um, there was really a center of power that had been allied with the the Sultan and nation regime as well. So. They must have had within each group different reactions to the counter-revolution as well, right? Of course, we do not see that that of difference that of different reaction within each group. For example, the Armenians at the time uh, were represented by the Armenian revolutionary groups who immediately sided with the CUP, uh, with and they immediately furnished uh, volunteers uh, volunteer, volunteer corpses to the CUP in order to achieve its aim of ousting the counter-revolutionaries from the capital. The same case, the same might be said about the uh, about the uh, about the Jews. For example, there there is a, the famous uh, Jewish uh, uh, Jewish battalion uh, called the Musavi Taburu, uh, which came from Salonika in order with the with, uh, in tandem with the uh, with the uh, Action Army in order to uh, liberate the capital from the counter-revolutionaries. But one thing is evident at the time is that when the counter-revolution takes place, we have major newspapers of these ethnic groups in the capital. They actually do not take sides. They do not, they do not, uh, cr- cr- uh criticize the, uh, the counter-revolutionaries. For example, one important newspaper at the time, which is the Jamanak newspaper, which still continues to be published, uh, by Ara Kochunyan today. And the Jamana newspaper, when uh, during during that time, they uh, even they run interviews uh, with the sheikhs and religious readers in order to uh, expound their views about why they are doing the counter revolution. 
So uh, to that extent, uh, it was uh, it was only after the counter revolution ends and the and the counter revolutioners are defeated that these uh, some of these newspapers immediately shift their con- concentration on more victory, uh, hailing the action army that came from uh, Salonika and hailing the uh, those uh, different ethnic groups who sacrificed their lives in order to uh, in order to achieve the victory of the uh, over the action army and one important point that i would like to emphasize here is the fact that whether it's the armenians or the, it's the other groups when they are fighting the counter revolutionaries they're not fighting uh, they're not fighting it to save the cup they're fighting these groups in order to save the constitution because for them Constitution was the aim, parliamentarism was the aim. For the Young Turks, the constitution was the means for an aim. So in in Adana province in particular, a lot of tensions relating to the counter-revolution seem to have escalated into large-scale violence and a massacre of, of probably more than 20,000 Armenians. Um, I know this is a, there's some historiographic debate here, and it's a contentious topic. But could you talk about the Adana massacre uh, a bit? Of course, Adana massacre is a complex, uh, complex uh, massacre that uh, you know it's very difficult to talk about it in five minutes. But Adana massacre should be seen in the context of the changes brought by the revolution and the changes in the in the structures of power within the provinces. I mean, we see these the the same changes happened in different provinces, but what's unique about Adana is its ethnic composition and the fact that uh, the existence of uh, of migrant workers uh, would play a dominant role in raising the uh, raising the level of the tensions. So uh, the Adana massacres are a manifestation of the anxieties that took place at the time in the region of Adana. Uh, after the Young Turk Revolution, the Armenians began uh, celebrating the revolutions, revolution, and they were very happy about it. They were boasting on the streets, carrying arms, uh, 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 celebrating the revolution through cultural celebration, hailing about an ancient kingdom that they had, the Cilician kingdom, uh, performing, uh, uh, giving theatrical performances. And all of this, as a matter of fact, Led to a lot of anxiety among the uh, among the uh, among the Muslim population of Adana, and this anxiety was translated into a political action. And they were afraid that the Armenians were going to revolt, which was false. Armenians uh, never intended to revolt in Adana, though you have a very minor fraction of the Hinchak party. They were bringing uh, bringing weapons and etc. But there wasn't uh, any uh, any intention by the Armenians to revolt, and all of these would manifest themselves in twin massacres that took place in Adana in April in the month of April, and these twin massacres led to the uh, led to the destruction of the Armenian neighborhood in Adana, uh, uh, Armenian businesses, and took the lives of twenty thousand Armenians, but also uh, two thousand Muslims uh, were killed, and after the after the uh, after the uh, massacres, there were uh, about three military, three court martials and military tribunals that took place in Adana. And uh, what these tribal, what these uh, court martials indicated is that the Adana massacres were premeditated. It was uh, it was premeditated massacre. 
planned by uh, the local notables, the governor, and also members of the CUP, despite the fact that the CUP and the local notables were uh, were against each other from the beginning of the revolution. So I think that there needs more work to be done about the Adana massacres, and that's the subject of my second large project. So maybe this is too large of a question, but to some extent, would you say that that this is a, a manifestation of the way that the revolution fails, that that, that in, to some extent it's about different understandings of revolution and Ottomanism that could never be reconciled, or was the failure of the revolution due to maybe the CUP overstepping and being too authoritarian, or, or, or was the... Uh, how can you put that into the context of the overall sort of failure of the revolution? Uh, is this connected to the Adana again, or yeah? So, because or, after or, after the Adana massacres would become uh, a turning point uh, uh, for the Armenians, for example, because they will lose their confidence in the revolution and its architect, the Committee of Union Progress. The uh, uh, the Zionists were also similarly disappointed. For them, the revolution became a source of was a source of hope uh, for their national pro- project of establishing a Jewish homeland in Palestine. But uh, but the CUP policies that were going to they were going to pursue after the Adana massacres of restricting public gathering of uh, of uh, of uh, ban of uh, of, uh, of of removing people from uh, their positions. And of of denying certain rights to the groups, of all many or, or uh, gave alarms to the alarmed the people, the ethnic groups that uh, the dream of the revolution was crumbling. But one thing we have to understand uh, about the uh, about the about the shattered dreams of the of the revolution of these groups, that in the end of the day, uh, the we have to understand the fact that the CUP, the Committee of Union Progress. Their aim was to preserve the integrity of the Ottoman Empire, and the uh, the integrity of the Ottoman Empire could be saved only with the existing political structures that were available for them, and these existing structures were uh, constitutionalism and parliamentarism, and they used these structures as means to reach an aim, and that's to preserve a centralized. Uh, empire preserved in integrity of a centralized empire. In doing so, they were also ready to step on the on the spirit of the constitution, on the spirit of liberty, by taking extra constitutional and extra legal measures in order to crush dissidents, in order to crush opposition, in uh, for the sake of staying in power. And that's why I see the Young Turk Revolution. Uh, a, a revolution of contradictions, contradiction between modernity and the tradition, contradictions between the ideals of the revolution, contradiction between the ways in which dominant groups viewed the revolution, between the contradiction between the way way uh, non-dominant uh, groups viewed the revolution. So, uh, so in concluding, I argue that revolutionary dreams of the empire's non-dominant groups were shattered. Again, not only by the CUP's authoritarian tendencies, but also by the contradictory dynamics that highlighted the revolutionary and post-revolutionary process. Uh, This incompatibility of their dreams, meaning the dreams of the ethnic groups with those of the CUP and the power asymmetries of power that define the relationship with the Young Turks ensured this disappointment. These non-dominant groups from their weak positions 
attempted to pressure the CUP into implementing long-awaited reforms and pushing for decentralization. This was the case with the Armenians, with the Zionists, and with the Arabs. And once all of these groups realized that the democratic process that was created in the beginning of the of the revolution and uh, their polit- political vision had been aborted, they started resorting to mobilizing international power to exert pressure on the Ottoman government. And this type of interference of European powers was something that the CUP despised from the day of its inception. And one thing we need to understand that we're talking about the early 20th century, in the, uh, the, uh, in, in the early 20th century, in an era of rising nationalism and increased global communication, the Ottoman Empire, like many other empires, fell victim to rise of nation states. So uh, to that extent, the whole idea of, uh, of empire in the 20th, 20th century was an impossibility uh, due to uh, the emergence of its antithesis, and that's the nation state. Right. Great. Um, so you, you briefly mentioned your next project. Could you just tell us a little bit more about that? Well, next project is, uh, uh, is would be about examining the violence that inflicted the region of Adana in 1909. And I would like to go beyond essentialist approaches of understanding the violence as uh, as uh, Turks massacring Armenians and putting it in march in 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 a larger context of understanding ethnic violence that erupted in the 19th and the early 20th century in the region of the Ottoman Empire or modern Middle East uh, that would be the project of understanding why the Adana massacres took place and what what could we learn from the Ottoman massacres uh, to understand the larger pattern of violence inflicting different societies? There are many arguments about uh, about how to view the case. First of all, uh, examining the underlying tensions within the society uh, and the way in which revolutions uh, re- regularly change the dynamics of power within these societies. And also uh, the the 19th century uh, uh, transformations that took place in the Ottoman Empire in terms of Tanzimat, economic uh, economic anxieties, uh, economic envy towards the Armenians, and uh, many different dimensions of of uh, exploring the uh, the uh, the causes and the reasons for the enactment of violence. So that's a large project that currently I'm working on. It would be based on Ottoman, Armenian, French, German, uh, Arabic uh, archives, and that that's the second project. That sounds like a, a great project, and I am looking forward to hearing more about it. Thank you. Um, Bedros, I just want to thank you again for being on the show today. I very much enjoyed it, and take care. Thank you, Ari. Bye-bye.